In this episode, translator from Icelandic to English, Larissa Kaiser talks about her translations, Icelandic literature, life in Iceland, special relation Icelanders have with volcanoes, and the book The Fires. You can find the link to buy the book The Fires in the show notes. Larissa Kaiser is a writer and Icelandic to English literary translator. Her translation of Kristin Eriksdóttir's A Fist or a Heart was awarded the American Scandinavian Foundation's 2019 Translation Prize. The same year, she was one of the Princeton University's translators in residence. In 2021, she guest edited On the Periphery, a spotlight on new Icelandic writing for words without borders. Her translation of Sigridar Hagelin Bjorn's Dothirs The Fires was released in 2023 and will be followed by Frida Eisberg's The Mark in 2024. Larissa has received grant funding and support from the Fulbright Commission, the Icelandic Ministry of Education and Culture, the Icelandic Literature Center and Finland's Kone Foundation. She is a former co-chair of Pen America's Translation Committee. and is currently an at large board member for the American Literary Translators Association and runs the Virtual Women Plus in translation reading series Zill Welcome to our podcast Larissa so nice to have you with us today Thank you for having me I'm so glad to be here Did you give any warnings and signals to your family that you are going to become a translator when you are a child <laughs> I've always been I've always been a very book-oriented person. So, I grew up in Arizona in Tucson, which is very close to the US-Mexico border. And there was always Spanish around me, but I was never really given the opportunity in schools to learn it. Second language education wasn't a part of my childhood. It just wasn't available. And so I was reading all the time and I was really excited about learning about other countries and other places and I think when I was probably like 6 I told my mom I wanted to learn Chinese because I thought it would be really interesting to go somewhere that was so far away and China was like the furthest place I could imagine So I was like I wanted to learn Chinese but I was in Arizona and there wasn't even language instruction for the the language that was like all around me So my mom desperately tried to find me Chinese language education but it just didn't it didn't work. So it wasn't actually until I was in high school that I got to start learning a language. I started with Spanish because that was then available. And then when I was in college I continued that, but I never spoke great Spanish. I think possibly because I didn't choose it. It was just what was available. I wish I would have learned Spanish better. I think it would be an amazing thing to be and a very useful thing to be very to be bilingual in Spanish and English now. But when I decided that I was going to be a translator, that was in college or actually after college, was well after college. And then I decided I would just switch to a language that I could pick and start from scratch with. But I think the warning signs were maybe there, but I didn't ever wake up one day and say, "I'm going to be a translator, mom." You went and lived in Iceland for 5 years. Why did you do it and uh, tell us about the experience of living there? So when I went to Iceland I was 28 years old. I had graduated from college and I had been working at a university for a, a while in New York 
And I knew I wanted to be a translator and I had done all this reading and I had decided this is the literary culture for me. Like Iceland was the place I was, but it's a very small language and it like people say you can do anything in New York, but you cannot really learn Icelandic. So I needed to go to, I needed to go to Iceland to learn Icelandic. And very luckily there were grants in place that would support that. So I spent about a year prepping a grant application. And then, yeah, I went on that. I went and first and foremost to learn Icelandic so I could become a translator. What is the relationship, the special relationship Icelandic people enjoy with volcanoes? With volcanoes. This is a very timely question. I don't know if you've seen, but the there's a, an eruption that just happened last night. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it was incredible. Like I was sitting, I was finishing up work on my computer. And then all of a sudden I start getting all of these pictures that people are sending me from their, like their decks and like their porches. And like, you can see it everywhere. The uh, paragraph that I'm going to read from the fires later, it actually talks about Icelanders relationship with volcanoes. It is a very unique, it's a very unique relationship. It's, I think, respectful and I wouldn't, I don't like, I don't know how to put this. Icelanders get very excited about it. Like they get very excited about this, like this magnificent thing that's happening on their island, like before their faces. And there's a lot of knowledge, obviously, and there's a lot of respect that it's being treated with. And obviously it's a dangerous phenomenon. But it's it's also very exciting for people, I think. I think I guess uh, even the capital uh, Reykjavik uh, sits on a volcano. It's not on a volcano, but it's in the middle of a very like volcanic area. And the newest eruption, which I don't even know if they've named yet, that is like that's on the way to the airport. So it's like less than forty five minutes from the capital. So how is the life there in general? It's it's a small it's a small place. It depends on if you're in the city and there's the one city or if you're in a rural area or a small town or a village out in the countryside. I only ever lived in Reykjavik, although I've spent time in the countryside. I think the thing that I was really impacted by when I was there just culturally speaking was that Icelanders they're on an island in the middle of the North Atlantic, so they had to make their own fun. And they're very proud of their language. They've maintained their language like through colonialism, through like the incursions of English and all of these other influences. So they have a very rich culture, and that culture is very linguistic. Like there's just a ton of writing. There's there's so much art production that's being done for such a small nation. There's just like a ton of art production. There's a really active theater scene. There's many newspapers. Like it's a very small country, but it has an incredibly robust cultural life. And I think that's just because for so long, like they, they yeah, like I said, they had to provide it for themselves. But now that's going. And so it, it's just, it's a very creative environment. People are allowed to experiment and try things out. And maybe you produce something that's not great art, but you still put it out there and you... It's a lot more liberated of an approach, I think, than we have in the U.S., where if you put out a bad piece of art, that might be your only chance. So there's a lot more stress, I think. There's not a, a structure that supports that kind of experimentation. So I just checked that about 350,000 people speak Icelandic. 
Yes, it's a it's an incredibly small number of people. Yeah. Although I will say it's really it's the Icelandic as a second language program is I think one of one of the most like one of the largest programs at the university, if not the largest program at the university. Like people are very excited about learning Icelandic. It doesn't always take in like a, you don't necessarily go home and speak it with your partner. But but I think that there is actually, for as much legitimate concern as there is about preserving the language, I think there's there's more people who are speaking Icelandic now than ever have. So how many active translators from Icelandic to English? It's a very small number. It was actually one of the, it was one of the motivating factors for me, besides the fact that I was just like, I fell in love with the language. I would say people who are regularly translating more or less full time there's 10 maybe 8 8 to 10 maybe a dozen there's more people than there used to be and we're seeing people that are coming up but it is a very small group wonderful in fact uh, we have uh, 120 million people speak uh, my mother tongue telugu all over the world and uh, we don't have a single serious uh, telugu to english translator I I always think that this, this is such an interesting the the way that this happens. The maybe it's time for you to become a translator. We can bring you on board. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hopefully once I get time beyond my job and this I would love yep. to do one. <laughs> yep. Just throw it in there. <laughs> you can be the first. <laughs> Hopefully I should take inspiration from you. <laughs> so we'll bring you on board. <laughs> yeah. So how did your stay in Iceland help you in your translations? Yeah, it was it helped amazingly. Um not only because I I learned the language, um it takes time and my my Icelandic is still I write it very well. I read it very well. I speak it it depends on the day. <laughs> I I can get through life. I can have a job interview, I can work with kids, but but it's not always pretty. But it took that time to to learn the language and on besides that what was really great about being there for such a, a a long period of time was that I wasn't just experiencing Iceland as the beautiful tourist destination. I got to do the mundane stuff. I opened a bank account, I paid my taxes, I got a minimum wage job, I went to the mall, I got a library card, I went to the pool. And I think that sort of quotidian day-to-day stuff is what gives life texture. And I think that texture is really important to try and convey in a translation. And a lot of that comes through like these little details that maybe you wouldn't realize have any significance if you hadn't spent any time there. enough time there what are the languages other than english icelandic literature is getting translated into this i thought was a really interesting question because there's actually there's a surprising number of languages that uh, icelandic gets translated into the scandinavian languages are always like the big like the first wave because they're so close culturally speaking so danish swedish norwegian a lot of icelandic authors are uh, translated into those languages but then Icelandic literature is quite popular in France and also Germany and then because in in those cases like there's two translators in French who are basically translating all of it into French and then often thanks to the efforts of individual translators you also have people who are translating 
directly from Icelandic into their mother tongues. And so that includes Czech, Brazilian Portuguese. There's somebody who translates into Galician. It's a very interesting range of languages that Icelandic gets translated into. So are there any organizations specifically working for Icelandic translations? Yeah. So there's a lot of literature is just very important in Iceland. And so there are a lot of organizations, everything, all statistics in Iceland are always couched in per capita. It's like the king of the per capita records, but per capita, there are a lot of organizations. So there's the, there's the Icelandic Literature Center, which funds translations both into and out of Icelandic and not just like full translations, but they also fund sample translations and readers reports. And so things that can help disseminate Icelandic literature out into the world further, which is really helpful. There's the Reykjavik was named a UNESCO city of literature. So they have an office that does all sorts of like really exciting initiatives, many of which involve translation. Like there was a book that they funded or co-funded recently called, it was a bilingual book. It was called Writers Adrift in English. And it was a collection of essays by uh, foreign born writers in Iceland that was also edited by two women of foreign origin, which is a really new thing in Iceland. Immigrants are also becoming part of the literary scene. So that was, I think, a really exciting development. And they do all sorts of projects like that as well. Now, we will come to the initiatives that you have taken up. Uh, the first one is Jill. So Jill, Jill has been quite the labor of love. It's a virtual women, I call, call it Women Plus. So Women Plus in translation reading series. So it spotlight, spotlights women, trans, and or non-binary translators or translators of women, trans, and or non-binary authors. And this kind of grew out of conversations that I was having around Women in Translation Month, which is now in August. That was an initiative that was created by a blogger. Her name is Maytel Radinsky. And she was talking about the fact that women authors in translation are read like, or at least at the time were read considerably less than, than male authors. And they were getting less coverage. And if they're getting less coverage, they're selling less and they're not being displayed in bookstores. And it's just this trickle down effect. And so she started Women in Translation Month, which was a roaring success. I, my, my thinking, and when I was talking to other translators at the time, was just that it's great that we have this month, but we could be doing this kind of all month, like all year. Um, there's plenty of, there's plenty of, of things that we could be reading all year. Um, I was interested in creating a space uh, that would expand that timeline and then also expand who we were talking about. So we're not just focusing on women anymore. We're focusing on other translators and authors who have also been marginalized. And at the same time, we're not shutting the door to anybody. So we're not saying that you can't read as a, a cis male translator or that you as a woman can't read a cis male author. It's just that somebody involved in the equation needs to be one of these groups. I think it's been a real success and also, I think the the fact that a good example of of how this works, I think, is our namesake, uh, the the translator and literary scholar Suzanne Jill Levine. She goes by Jill in life. She's translated plenty of amazing women authors, but she's also the reason that we have like Manuel Puig, for instance, in English. And so, 
I, I wouldn't want to tell Jill that she couldn't read Manuel Puig if that was what she wanted to read, because I'm very interested in knowing what projects kind of light translators up. Yeah, it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful run. It's a lot of work, but it's a wonderful run. And my co-organizer, Elizabeth Redfield, and I have kept it going since 2019 now. And, and we've had 84 translators read for us. The last time I counted, it might be more now, 84 translators, and they've translated out of 26 languages, which I think is pretty, pretty amazing. And now about Os. Os is, uh, is an Icelandic, it's an Icelandic organization that is run by women of foreign origin. And the idea is that it creates, yeah, it's helping to create this space for people who weren't being published or heard in the Icelandic literary scene. So I've not been hugely involved in recent years, but I have taught some workshops for them, bilingual translation workshops for both like adults and teens. It's been really interesting in that respect, but they're doing all sorts of things. They've supported the publication of a couple of books by some of their members. Helen Kova is, she's from Venezuela and she's published several books, poetry, prose, and picture books as part of OS. One of the other founding members, Ewa Marszynek, who's from Poland, she was one of the editors of the essay collection I mentioned before. A master's degree in translation studies. What is the value it added to your translations? I wouldn't necessarily recommend a master's degree for everyone who wanted to pursue translations as a pursuit, as a craft. For me, it was really helpful, partially because it gave me, I just needed time to practice. I had never done, I had done creative writing classes. I had never done any translation workshops or anything like that. So I had the basis because it's all the same toolkit. Translation Manifesto that was collectively written recently. That's one of the first points is that translation is writing. So I had the foundational skill set, but I needed time to, to practice between English and Icelandic, I, I need that kind of guidance. Translation studies involves often a lot of theory, some of which has been really useful to me and I fall back on it when I'm thinking about how to approach a translation. Some of which is just, I think, ambient now for me in my work. I don't think every day about, oh, this or that theory. But it was, it was really important for me to have that time to read and to have that time to write. And because I was doing it in Iceland, it was affordable. And, and I also got the language support that I needed. So it was like, I got to do like a whole thesis that was just a translation. And then I got to have that feedback from my professor and my advisor. And that kind of thing was just really, it was really important to, to have people help you figure out where you could be creative and where you can stretch more and where you can take risks and where you need to be a little more pragmatic about your choices. And it just gave me a lot of space for experimentation, which I think is really important. Now, please tell us about uh, contemporary authors and uh, themes in Icelandic literature. I don't even know where to start with uh, contemporary. There's so many there are so many amazing Icelandic authors. And once you start naming a couple, then you start feeling bad that you're not naming everybody. But So tell us about the themes then. <laughs> no issue. <laughs> like, 
the themes I would say it's pretty wide ranging. I think one of the, the great things about Icelandic literature is that it is both very inward and very outward looking. There's a real immediacy. Like if a book takes place in Reykjavik, you can often read it like a map almost. Like the descriptions of the location will be extremely precise. And if it is not extremely precise, like if it diverges in some way, then that's probably a plot point or like people are going to be fussed because everybody knows what that city looks like and everybody's walked those streets. And I think in some ways when you read contemporary literature, you're getting like a very you're getting a very accurate picture of what Iceland and Reykjavik in particular look like. Not that there's not fiction written about the countryside, it's just that I'm more familiar with the descriptions of the city. But then there's also, there's, there's all sorts of books that are also very cognizant of things going on in the larger world and topics that maybe have resonance that aren't just based directly in the city. There's a new book called Armello that talks about travel fatigue, for instance, like this idea of people compulsively traveling. It's not the only thing the book is about, but it's it was a theme that I thought was like very interestingly international when you think about all of the social media feeds with people constantly posting pictures of like wherever they've been and this sort of compulsion that people have to check off like places on their bucket lists or whatever. There's another book that I read recently that The Cult of Beautiful People, and it involves a pharmaceutical MMA and a multi-level marketing scheme. Like is a, a cult that's like at some point based in Morocco. Like it, it goes all different directions. Family is always a big topic because families are are core to Icelandic culture. There's a, like a lot of things take place within the family. So like there holidays that in the US, for instance, would be like a often a friend holiday or gonna be like a family celebration in Iceland, like New Year's Eve. People get dressed up in like their fanciest clothes and they hang out with their grandmas and set off like fireworks in their yards. And so much is just organized around having a family. So I think family bonds are huge in Icelandic literature, whether that's like successful family bonds and strong family bonds or ones that aren't gonna that, that aren't working the way that they're supposed to. Another thing that I've seen a lot of lately that I'm very excited about is the short stories are just huge in Iceland right now. There's like sort of a short story boom. And so there's all sorts of interesting short fiction being written. I think it, it's also, it's like a nice way for people to transition between genres too, because you have a lot of poets who transition into prose writing by writing short fiction. And I think those Poetry is such a huge thing in Iceland that I think it infuses a lot of the writing and that comes through in the short fiction as well. Now, how is the reception to translations from Icelandic language into English? I would say it's always relatively positive. There's not a ton of... Icelandic is lucky in the sense that there is now more than just like one or two authors. I think that there are some languages where you only get one or two authors and those two authors have to stand in for literally everybody. And I think that can be a lot of pressure. And also it's just, it's not a great way to learn about a country. You can't say that you know all about any literature just because you've read one author. So 
there is a broader swath of people being translated from Icelandic now, especially per capita as we, <laughs> in terms of like how many authors there, there are. But you still have maybe four or five authors who are like the main people that people are reading. That starts with Haldor Laxness, who's Iceland's only Nobel laureate. He's the only Icelander to have ever won a Nobel Prize. And amazing author, really impactful in terms of like his, like the impact that he made on Icelandic literature in general, and actually even like international literature. And Icelandic authors have taken a lot and from what he did and created. However, he's not the sum total of it. So yeah, they, if you only have one author, you can't really see, you can't really see the whole variety of a literature. What I meant to say with that also is that I think Iceland has a very large presence in terms of being a tourist destination. And the volcanoes and Bjork and like, elves like there are certain themes vikings to a certain extent that people associate with waterfalls like these are the things that people think about when they think about iceland and so i think that the reality is yes those things are present but also it is more complicated in order to get a broader sense of that you need a broader swath of literature but it is not always super easy to sell books that aren't very like Icelandic in the way that people think about what Icelandic is. It doesn't even necessarily need to be true. It's just like it has to fit into their picture of what Iceland is. And so it can be difficult to expand what people want to read from Iceland because they have a sense of what they want to get from it. How could you get to publication of your first translation, full length translation? That was a lot of luck <laughs> in some ways. I had done a sample because I, a, a really great way to get into translation, at least it worked for me because it's such a small scene, was I started doing sample translations for publishers. And one of the sample translations that I did was of this book called Alan Imislecht in Icelandic, which is now translated as A Fist or a Heart. And by Kristen Eriksdóttir. And still a very special book to me. I love this book. But I had done this sample and I had, I just had a really, I had a really great feel about it. I think there are some, there are some projects that you do that just click, like the language clicks, the topic clicks, and it just feels really natural as you're translating. And that, this was one of those books. And so it was being shopped around at literary festivals and the editor who bought it at Amazon crossing her name. She's not there anymore. She's at a different publisher, but her name is Gabriella Pagefort, and she's a really incredible editor. And she has a, a really strong sense of voice. And she just, she really liked the sample and she decided that she would take a, a chance on somebody who hadn't done a full length publication for an actual publisher in the US before. So I had finished a full-length translation of a crime novel that the author self-published in Iceland. And I had translated a couple of self-help books at that point that were also self-published by the author. So this was my first, yeah, this was my first foray into full-length novel translation. 
So this one was really, it was lucky that, that she was willing to take that risk because it is definitely possible for you to do a sample, the book sells, and then another translator will get the project. What is the theme of uh, a fist or a heart? It involves a an older woman. She's I think she's in her late 70s. Her name is Ellen. And she makes props for a theater and or for theaters. Uh, and they're usually like very grotesque props. Like she makes it's for theaters and for films. So she makes, um, for instance, severed hands that are, are on crime shows and all of this like really grotesque stuff. Um, and so she's she's starting to get dementia and she's working on a play. She's making props for a play that was written by a much younger woman in her like early 20s, who's also named Ellen, but spelled slightly differently. And the two have a shared, there's a, a, a very important shared incident in their past but one of them was too young to remember it. And one of them is forgetting everything because she's got dementia. And so it involves memory and trauma and relationships between women. And it's a really an art making and like art making as like a form of dealing with trauma. It's a wonderful book. I, I cannot recommend it enough. And I know that I'm biased, but I, I love it. It's a very interesting theme, no? Making props and, uh, yeah. It's very tactile and very diaphanous at the same time. This, the author, I, I work with her quite a bit. I'm working on her latest book, which also involves art making, but in different ways. And she just, she has such a, she has a very concrete, unadorned way of writing sometimes, but she gets so much emotional impact into that writing. And it's very good practice for me because I have to strip away all of the unnecessary things that I want to put into a sentence and just get to the real kernel of it. So I think translating her has made me a better writer. So approximately how many books uh, have been translated when it comes to literary fiction from Icelandic to English? Give me a very rough cut figure. So since 2008, there have been 94 books translated from Icelandic. Now, I did a breakdown of this once, and it is interesting because a huge block of these are going to be crime novels. And of those crime novels, most of them are written by three people. So it is a big, it is a, actually a, a reasonably large number of books, but when you actually break it down, you're mostly getting crime novels and you're mostly getting three or four authors. Now, tell us about your upcoming works. One of the, one of the books that I'm the most excited about is it's called The Mark. It's by Frida Isberg, and she's a young poet and author. This is her first novel. And it's speculative fiction about uh, a Reykjavik not so distant in the future, not so far in the future. And societies around the world have started implementing this thing called the empathy test that actually tests to see if you are an empathetic person. And there's a binary between you're, you either are an empathetic person or you're a psychopath. 
they're, they're getting rid of words like psychopath, but this is still like the kind of like underlying narrative. And so the idea is that you can take this test and you can be marked. And that means like publicly publishing your results. So you can tell the world that you are like, you've tested, you are an empathetic person or you're not, you failed. And people who fail or don't take the test and aren't marked start being like shut out of neighborhoods and different stores won't let them in. And there are all these knock-on effects. And so in the, at the beginning of this book, Iceland is about to vote in a referendum to decide whether or not marking should be mandatory. And it's told there's four main narrators, but then there, I think all told there end up being six or seven voices, which is a really interesting translation exercise. It was a really challenging, but like a fun challenging. So that is coming out next year in the UK and Australia. And then hopefully the US will be after that. Now we will come to the book, uh, The Fires. Please tell us about the author of uh, The Fires. The author, her name is Sigrid Hageli Bjornstotir, and she is she started as a journalist, and she's still a journalist for the national broadcasting service Roof. And the fires is, I think, her third novel, and she did an incredible amount of research on it. It's it is about a volcanologist named Anna, and Anna is a rational, level-headed woman with a very orderly, very comfortable life. She has a husband that she loves. She has a very nice home in the suburbs. She's got two kids. And she is like the leading volcanologist in Iceland. And everything is going along smoothly. And then she, as, she, as volcanic activity on the Reykjanes Peninsula is starting to pick up, and the Reykjanes Peninsula is it's very close to the capital. It's where the international airport is located. And it's got a lot of population centers on it. So as this volcanic activity is picking up on the Reckinus Peninsula, she is falling in love all of a sudden with a bohemian photographer. And kind of her life gets upended by this because it's like a very unrational thing that she's doing. And she's trying to, she's trying to force herself to act in the way that she usually acts, which is like very orderly and by the book. All of this is coming to a head as like the volcano is getting ready to erupt. And the really, there's a couple of amazing things about it. First of all, she did tons and tons of research. She covers volcanic activity as a journalist. And so she was in the field with geoscientists in Iceland. She did like all sorts of interviews with them. And the science, to my knowledge, is quite accurate. She also brings in all sorts of actual articles and scientific papers that she quotes throughout but she also brings in poetry and poetry that like isn't even super popular among icelanders she's got like a real deep and very broad love of icelandic poetry and so her characters often involve like poetry in their day-to-day -day lives and so it's got poetry and science and it's got romance and like a, it's got a thriller plot but it's just a beautiful her writing is really beautiful it's really moving book about motherhood it's a lovely it's another really just lovely book it's also pretty interesting because she wrote it 
about four months before, it was published about four months before an actual volcanic eruption that happened in almost the exact spot that it does in the book and almost the exact way that it happens in the book. So people just thought she was psychic. Like it was, it was all of a sudden, like people were like quoting passages of it on social media as like this volcanic eruption was going on. Cause luckily the volcanic eruption in real life did not go the direction that it goes in the book. But, but yeah, it was pretty remarkable. Now tell me what is she writing about next? Since the fire, she's written two. She wrote a book that was about a professor who goes into a more or less voluntary exile in, in a rural part of the country because he's had a Me Too episode and he's discovering the letters of this monk that was writing during the 14th century about this incredible figure in Icelandic history named Olaf the Rich. And she was a very unusual figure in a very dark period of, of Icelandic history. So the book goes back and forth in time. So that one is called The Fortunes of This World, A Knight's Tale, which I think is an amazing title. I've only been able to translate a sample of that. but that So she did that one. And then she did another book called Deus, which just came out this Christmas, which is about a bus driver who God speaks to like when he's about to start his route on this suburban bus route. And he then proceeds to try and share his like spiritual discovery with people who have no interest in hearing it. And his life intersects with that of a teenage girl who's had a lot of bullying at school. And so she is, yeah, their paths cross in, in different and exciting ways. Lots of poetry in that one as well. It's actually a really beautiful Christmas book. All of her books are beautiful. She's a wonderful writer. No, how informed are people of Iceland about climate change? And uh, in your opinion, how is it affecting them? So by virtue of the fact that they are on an ice-covered island in the Arctic, Icelanders are very aware of climate change. There is, if the glaciers melt, they're, the entire face of their, not if, as the glaciers melt, the entire face of their country is changing. In April 2019, Icelandic geologists announced that if climate change conditions continued in the way that they were, which they have, that the Snæfellsjökull glacier, which is the glacier that is in Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth, and it's like this very iconic, it's visible from Reykjavik glacier. They basically said that if it continues the way it has, that glacier will be completely gone in 30 years. And that's an incredible pace um, to lose like a, a giant glacier. And another author that, I'm, that I've worked with for ages, his name is Kauri Tulinius. He, just, he recently wrote a book called Jokulkurf, which means glacier line. It's a term for the zone where a glacier either accumulates or retreats. And so if the glacier isn't accumulating fast enough, then it just starts to, to retreat and melt. And he and I are going to finish translating a poetry cycle that's about that in at a residency in Finland in the spring. So I would say like it's present both in their fiction and their poetry. And it's also just like a, a constant concern. But 
it's a small nation. And even though maybe it has some political cachet or social cachet, it can't affect or it, it can't force these larger countries to to change their ways. So I think it's Iceland often tries to be a vocal advocate for progressive issues, but it's not always able to do that from a position of much control. Now, the other thing I found very interesting in the book is there is a lot of, like you said, there are a lot of technical details. A lot of scientific details are there. Minute details are there, even maps, locations, various other stuff. But how was it like translating all that down? You're talking about in the fires, right? With all the terminology? Yeah. So I had, towards the end, I was able to get a some documents. There were some, because there were all of these volcanic events going on, there, there was a professor who worked at the university and worked very closely with Sika, with the author. And he had prepared translation sheets of terms because there were all of these foreign journalists who were trying to figure out what to call things. And so I had a little bit to go off of. And there is actually like scientific writing. There's always a lot of scientific writing in English, but I then had to go in and I was doing it just tons and tons of Googling. Like I had to compare, like, okay, I have this term and then I would find that term in a paper. And then in the paper, sometimes I'd find like an abstract that had the same, like an English abstract of the Icelandic paper. So I could figure out the term. And then I would take the, the English term I found and, go do some more Googling. And then at the end, I actually sent a list of questions to the geoscientist that she'd been working with. And he was kind enough to look them over and to let me know where I had gone amiss. Now, before we end, please read a paragraph or two from the novel in both Icelandic and in English, please. Chapter towards the beginning that sort of touches on what we were talking about before. Yeah, Icelanders' special relationship with uh, with volcanoes. So I will read in Icelandic first, and then I'll read in English. Ég hafði rannsakað hana árum saman áður en það rann upp fyrir mér hvað við ætum í flóknu sambandi við hana. Ekki bara hekliu, heldur líka hinn eldfjöllin í landriu. Ég tók henni alltaf sem sjálfsjóktum hlut, kátri, kvíða blandinni eftir vætingunni þegar elgóst hefst. En þegar ég fór að ferðast til annarra eldfjallasvæða komst ég að því að þetta dálæti á jadeldum er næstum eld einstæmi. I'm not going to read that exact section quite yet because I thought it would be fun to read the author's note um, and then I can read the, the same paragraph. Uh, so the author's note says, Books often know more than the people who write them. This was one of the most surprising facts I discovered when I began writing, and this book is a prime example. It came out in Iceland in November 2020, four months before a volcanic eruption began for real on the Reykjanes Peninsula, just a few kilometers and a mere handful of days apart from the fictional eruption described in these pages. I'm not psychic. I was just as surprised about this as everyone else. This book is, however, based on scientific articles and my extensive conversations with geoscientists who not only shared with me anecdotes from their profession and conjectures about coming volcanic events, but also granted me ready access to new information and research in the lead up to the real eruption. 
Thus did science blend with fiction and this story become a part of reality. The world is, after all, made of more than stone. And then, and then this is the section I read in Icelandic. I'd spent years researching Hekla before I realized what a complicated relationship Icelanders have with her. And not just with Hekla, but with all the other volcanoes in this country as well. I always took it as a given, that blend of cheerful and anxious expectation Icelanders get any time an eruption begins. But when I started traveling to one to other volcanic regions, I discovered that our fondness for volcanic events is virtually unmatched. Elsewhere in the world, active volcanoes are viewed as threatening monsters. Filipinos and Indonesians fear and hate their volcanoes, whereas Icelanders baptize their children in honor of their most dangerous ones, as though they were beloved if capricious ants. No one's ever named a child Tambora or Krakatoa, but in Iceland we're knee-deep in little Heklas and Katlas. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for such an interesting and fascinating conversation about Iceland. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs>